now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning layer ones to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Before we jump in, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. Kava is a cross-chain DeFi platform that gives you the ability to earn more by connecting the world's largest cryptocurrencies, ecosystems, and financial applications in one safe and seamless integration. We're excited for the upcoming launch of the Swap Protocol a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Swap will join the Kava protocol and Hard protocol as the next application built on the Kava platform. Celo is a mobile-first platform that makes financial dApps and crypto payments accessible to anyone with a mobile phone, providing the opportunity to positively impact the users of 6 billion smartphones in circulation today. Celo's eco-friendly proof-of-stake consensus mechanism an ultra-mobile light client makes up to 17,000 times faster than other blockchains and accessible to mobile phone users around the world. Visit Celo.org to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. I help lead Delphi Ventures. Today, I'm thrilled to be recording from our WeWork office where I haven't been in like a year. And I have on Gabe Shapiro, who's GC of Delphi Labs, and I think one of the most well-known, knowledgeable legal voices in the crypto space. Gabe, how's it going? Going well. Glad to be here. Gabe, you look like you're ready for the weekend. <laughs> Hanging I'm, out? I'm always, I always look like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, I work, I work on my couch on a lap desk. It's great. <laughs> it's crazy how much you get done there. Well, Gabe, tell us a bit about your background for those who uh, don't follow you. Sure. So uh, I'm, I've been an attorney for, I don't know, maybe like 11 years now or something like that. And uh, for a lot of my career, I was a basically a Silicon Valley technology mergers and acquisitions attorney, I would say. Um, so I did a lot of buy side mergers deals for uh, big tech companies, you know, like Facebook, Oracle, eBay, you know, these types of companies. And I, you know, just spent, I was in the mix, right? I was uh, uh, in the Bay Area, you know, I I wasn't a venture lawyer uh, uh, primarily. So, you know, I was more on the due diligence side, right? Like uh, after, you know, a startup that was super successful, maybe one of my clients would like acquire it and I'd have to find all the mistakes that the venture capital lawyers made in their rounds and stuff like that. But, but I've been in that, I I was in that world basically. And um, I just got very interested in, in blockchain, ironically uh, by doing the Facebook WhatsApp deal, because the Facebook WhatsApp deal was, um, you know, it was all about, uh, a lot of it was about encryption and things like that. And so I got exposed to those issues, started researching encryption, and, and that led me to discover cryptocurrencies. And especially when I found Ethereum uh, and the idea of smart contracts, I was like, oh, cool. So like automating my job away, that like, that would be awesome. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got, I got pretty obsessed at that point. And, uh, 
in 2018, I, I kind of took the leap into blockchain full time, right, right before the bear market hit. Uh, perfect timing, as always. Um, and, and I've been doing crypto law, you know, in, in one guise or another ever since then. I love that. Any uh, war stories from your VC review days that you could, you know, legally share or anything there? Or I'm assuming most of it's kind of hidden. Well, uh, the I think I think maybe the funniest was when. Um, like we were doing a deal and uh, the, you know, the, the partner, it was like the, the head partner on the deal was like a very important partner at the firm, you know, very senior. He's on all the right uh, ABA committees and all these things. And uh, he really wanted to do the deal as an asset purchase. He, he wanted to do it that way the whole time. And of course, that's not as advantageous to the target Right, because you, you get to like leave behind the liabilities in an asset deal, um, and so you, you kind of stick them with it. And so it was a point of contention, and we were doing it as a stock deal. And uh, uh, in doing the due diligence, I, I found some like uh, honestly, arguably fairly minor uh, flaw, um, you know, in in the way that they had set up these entities uh, uh, early on. Uh, but it, it was enough of a flaw where we could argue that everyone like was entitled to the securities law remedy of rescission, uh, you know, meaning that they could like undo the entire deal and get like all their money back from the original investment and just like destroy everything. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, of course, he immediately seized upon this, you know, and made it the reason why, why we had to do an asset deal. So it just shows you how... how fairly minor things uh, can come back to haunt you. And there's a tendency for startups to be like, oh, you know, we just need to get it done. Um, and, you know, none of this stuff matters. And, and a lot of time that's true, honestly. But uh, every once in a while, you'll have some some weakness that you never suspected. And it'll be exploited like years later, uh, you know, by some uh, very um, like uh, like OCD style, like big law uh, partner on like a totally unrelated deal. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, a lot of war stories like that. You know, when thinking about the deals you looked at on the traditional side versus the crypto side, I mean, it kind of seems like everything is different. But to your point, you know, these deals close so fast that, you know, people might not spend that much time on minute details when things don't matter. But, you know, a week, a month, you know, a quarter later, these projects are worth, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. So this stuff starts to really matter. What's the biggest differences you see from... Yeah, there's a lot of paths we can go down here, and we will later in the podcast. But like, what are the biggest differences you see, I guess, from the legal side on projects starting in crypto versus your old world? Because like you said, a lot of these guys are just trying to close in a week or so. So, yeah, I would say that the uh, like they're actually becoming more similar now, right? But they used to be very, very different. Uh, I mean, the idea of funding a startup through an ICO, which is basically like an IPO, and that was the dominant mode of fundraising, you know, in, in 2017 and 2016. I mean, that would be crazy, right? It, it's actually the exact opposite in the traditional business world. You do a public offering when you're very, very mature, right? And you do a private offering, right, when you're very small, right? You raise from angels and VCs. And, and you do, so it used to be very different. Now it's much more similar, right, because projects are raising uh, – uh, quite sizable rounds from angels and from venture capitalists on a private basis. Uh, they, they clearly comply with securities laws at that stage because just, you know, limited to accredited investors, right. Or, 
or just make it a non-public offering, um, uh, and and you can comply with securities laws that way. So uh, uh, you know, in, in that sense, they become more similar to each other. But there still are a lot of differences, and I think that many people haven't fully processed all those differences. Like for example, you know, if you're raising for a traditional company, you're selling equity in that company, and that's all you're selling, right? You're not selling like five different types of securities to the same people, right? Um, because like, why would you do that? You know, if you wanted five different features, you could just add them in the same security, which is kind of like what preferred stock is, right? It has a little bit of debt and a little bit of equity, and you know, some voting and and, and these things. Um, but in these crypto rounds. Most often, it's a combined equity and token round, right? Uh, and so this is this leads to many very strange things, right? Because the, you're going to have all the same terms that you have in a traditional venture round with preferred stock. Then you're also going to have these token terms. What does it all mean, right? Because if you're as a company that's selling stock, you're unless you're some type of like newfangled entity like a public benefit corporation, which we still almost no one uses, you have a duty under the law to do what's called maximizing shareholder value, shareholder value, not token holder value, right? But on the other hand, you also are selling these tokens, right? And so it all works pretty well when your token holders are the same as your shareholders, but what happens when you launch this token out into the world, right? Or what happens when some of the shareholders own more of the stock than they own of the token because they sold some of the token? Well, now it gets very weird, right? Because you have this fiduciary duty to shareholders. It's kind of unclear what your duties are to token holders and whether all token holders are the same in that regard. Do you have a duty to every token holder or only to the ones who also hold stock? And it, it just gets very strange. And uh, I, I honestly think it's like, the contradictions and the conflicts of interest are huge and like underexplored. So that's one dramatic difference, I would say. No, that's that's a huge difference. I mean, is there an argument though that by not so you have the fiduciary responsibility to the equity side? Is there an argument though that these leaders also have to take care of the token holders because the token holders obviously underpin the security, longevity, incentives of the project, which then drive the equity? Or is that my leaping too much here? There might be some arguments, but they. They haven't really been litigated yet. So, you know, there might be some sort of implied fiduciary duty, right? But no one's been held guilty for violating any that fiduciary duty at any point yet, right? So at this point, I think most people proceed as if they have no duties to token holders as such, which I think is a, is a pretty perverse result. And it's one of many catch-22s that we'll probably discuss, which is that, like, the more clearly you assume responsibility for actually doing something for token holders, the more likely you are to get in trouble with regulators, ironically. And the less you do for them, uh, uh, the, the, the lower your regulatory burdens are, which makes no sense, but it, it is the case. It's crazy. It's kind of like handed off and you're in good shape, but your project's not in that case. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. No, I want to go a bit more into project formation, but I want to I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about regulations that are kind of at the forefront. So there's a lot going on. Everyone sees a new tweet every day, you know, Gensler this, SEC that. Um, I'm not sure people understand like who the regulating parties are and what their powers are and, and what they're actually able to do. Can you kind of dive into, I guess, you know, what you see as the body that would most regulate crypto or have most of an impact and kind of where they're at right now? 
Well, right now there there's a little bit of a turf war going on in in DC. I would say on that very subject, and I think that suddenly, with the administration change and the Dems, Dems are traditionally pro heavier financial regulation. Elizabeth Warren has become very powerful, and she obviously is a career long uh, sort of heavy financial regulatory person originally as a law professor. And and so there's now kind of like a a careerist scrambling to be seen as someone who is very good at being tough on crypto, because if you're perceived that way, you can get better positions and more authority and more power within the the Democratic Party. Um, And so there's there's a turf war where everyone is trying to get a piece of the pie uh, at the same time. And the best way they can get a piece of the pie is just to, if, if they have the authority to do so, just start start a ton of enforcement actions and investigations, right? And then, you know, whoever does the most of that and starts winning will probably end up with a lot of power. So, you know, currently the SEC is, uh, I would say, carpet bombing the industry, you know, with, uh, I don't think they've gotten to the subpoena stage with many of them yet. But they're, you know, they're sending out what are called, you know, voluntary, you know, requests for voluntary information, right? But of course, if you get one of those, you know that they have, you know, very strong subpoena authority and they could subpoena you. So you kind of might as well respond to those, you know, very fulsomely. And so, you know, there are a lot of investigations and conversations and, you know, incipient disputes brewing already. And the SEC has definitely been the most aggressive. And, and what they what they will assert is, you know, they will say, well, your governance token is a security. Uh, or they will say, well, uh, you know, your, your, your smart contract protocol, if you think of something like an AMM, right, um, it, there are like thousands of tokens that are in that. At least one of them is, is going to be a security, right? Like we won't even prove to you which one is a security. Like we're just going to say, like, isn't it obvious that at least one is a security? And therefore, aren't you running a securities exchange because you're involved in this smart contract and maybe like standing up a website, you know, that lets people interact with the smart contract, you know? Or they will say, well, for you know, maybe like a protocol like Compound. And again, I'm, I'm not anything I say here about specific things don't. Don't infer from that that they're like under investigation. I don't, you know, I don't know. I have no idea. But like, uh, uh, you know, for something that is like Compound or Ave or any type of like credit protocol, um, you know, they will say, well, look, it talks about paying an interest rate, it talks about an APY and an APR, and it talks about borrowing and lending. Uh, isn't this, you know, a, a peer-to-peer lending platform, just like all the ones that are registered with the SEC? And don't you have to come register with the SEC, right? Um, now, of course, these are analogies to the traditional financial world, and you know, in my opinion, they don't exactly hold up most of the time. But those are the those are the types of theories that they're asserting for why they have jurisdiction. That's a good. That's a good point. I, I understand the turf war. I understand why they would want to kind of carpet bomb to get as much power and and kind of be the point person and kind of gain control. How do you view though, I'm trying to understand, like how do you innovate on the legal structure or or what the government is okay with on one side while also trying to fit this in a box during a turf war, right? Like you have a turf war, people trying to get control. They're trying to put, you know, crypto into the old buckets that we had on the legal side for, you know, last hundred years. But on the other side, you also have like an innovation track, hopefully where the government starts to get okay with this. They innovate a bit. 
How do those two coexist together or do they not coexist together? I think right now they they don't coexist. I, I hope that they do at some point. Uh, but I just think that there's there's just a lot of initial skepticism and hostility. And I, I don't really blame the regulars for it completely because, you know, I, I do think there's a lot of bullshit out there, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of people trying to like make something seem decentralized, but it's really not, you know, and all the benefits are flowing to a very few people. So, so I get their skepticism, right? Um, but on the other hand, they, they don't really offer solutions, right? Like you, you couldn't, you know, like Tom Emmer, you know, ha- had a good tweet storm yesterday about this and in his questioning of Gensler a few days ago, um, you know, during the, the House uh, uh, oversight hearings. But even if you, even if someone wanted to say, okay, yeah, we, we think our token is a security or like we think our smart contract system is a securities exchange, it, they couldn't go to the SEC and like to just do the proper registrations and have it all work. Like, like it wouldn't work. They, like, like FINRA is not going to accept like a smart contract system or like just some team of software developers and like start treating them as broker dealers. Right. And like broker dealers, they're like not allowed to like simultaneously custody securities and non-securities together. So like you would have to have like completely, like you couldn't have, um, like Coinbase anymore because it trade it would be trading both like some non-securities tokens and some securities tokens and like like that's not allowed right so it's not like a path does exist where you know even if everyone was willing to admit that there were securities they could just come in and make it work and a few people did try to make that path work right like like Blockstack uh, and there was a project called Props which, which I don't exactly understand what it is but. Um, they, they did something called the Regulation A plus path, which is where you can um, you don't have to do the full SEC reporting, but you have to do something similar, and you get uh, there, there's some transferability for the securities, but there are also limits on that transferability. But you could sell to retail, like you're not limited to only accredited, and it can trade, but it can only trade in securities venues, right? So, um, and, and and so props tried to do this, right? And they got the Reg A plus qualification, and, and they ended up shutting down like a month ago with a big announcement of how basically it was impossible for them to make it work well as a product while also treating the token as a security and doing the reporting. Because like every time that they would want to make any change to the system, of course, software is all about constant changes. They they would have to go through basically a new qualification process. It just doesn't work. That's crazy. Right? Yeah. You know, I don't know the right way to phrase this question. So I'm just going to throw it out there and, and say that it's not my view. But, you know, when you look back at how this panned out, like Blockstack did a Reg A plus offering years ago. They spent a, a good chunk of the money at their money at the time to do it before the token was, you know, worth a lot more. And then you have something like EOS that, you know, raised billions of dollars and they kind of got a $24 million fine. So it, it kind of feels like it's in the project's best interest to kind of innovate and ask for forgiveness later. And this is obviously not my opinion or legal opinion or don't go do this guys, but you know, I'm trying to get your read through here it seems like everyone's in a better position if you kind of push the boundaries a little bit. Obviously, I'm not saying to do anything wrong, but right. what's your read through on kind of how that panned out? Yeah, I mean, it's true. Yeah, I mean, people people who asked for permission 
had to shut their projects down, refund all the money, and never do anything after spending a year negotiating with the SEC, right? And people who just did something became very rich. And that's because of the SEC has limited resources and, you know, they're probably somewhat distractible based on where the political winds are blowing. And, you know, Clayton, when he came in in 2017, initially he was like Gensler. He was like, all right, we're going to crack down on this whole thing, right? But after they got a couple wins under their belt, suddenly they kind of seemed to lose interest. Then suddenly there was that, you know, kind of out of left field speech about sufficient decentralization, which, uh, you know, I like, but but surprised a lot of people um, and, and certainly didn't paint a clear picture of what people should be doing. And, and then there was just this kind of long period where, yeah, people could just do stuff and get away with it and get really rich to their credit. You know, I think that this new SEC administration doesn't want to repeat that, what they probably see as being a mistake. And there, that's why that they are like, engaging in, you know, an, an unprecedented, I think even, you know, I, I think it is, is deeper than what they did in 2017, early 2018, you know, just really sending out so many letters and investigations and really rattling sabers. But at the end of the day, like, I, I don't know how it's going to go because he, he might, like, if he works people hard enough to actually go after all of these projects simultaneously, Right then, like he's going to be the most hated, you know, SEC chair even by the SEC staff because they'll be like so overworked, like they just don't have the resources. Like that being said, you know, it's, it's not like I I'm, I want to just like exhaust the SEC staff, you know, like you don't you don't want to do. No one wants that. No one just wants to like roll the dice and hope that they're the project that's not enforced against. It, it should just be different. It should just be clear what they need to do and. They, they, what they need to do should be something that doesn't kill the usefulness of the project. And then everyone should just do that and, and it should all work. But uh, unfortunately, I think we're very far from that. And there's just going to be a lot of litigation and selective enforcement. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Exhausting everyone would, would be annoying. I, and I do think Gensler is trying to help people in need that maybe need to get up to speed and to protect people. So I give him some credit there. If you had to give advice to Gensler on his you know, current path, you know, what, what would you say, like, if you had an hour to talk to him and maybe to share your views with him, what do you think you'd probably spend the most time on? Oh, well, I, like, I would say that they should, like, like not focus so much on the enforcement actions and focus on creating a workable framework. Uh, and I think a lot of people have proposed a lot of interesting ideas on workable frameworks, some of which are, like, I would say contradictory with each other, but to me, all that really matters is just finding something that works. Right. You know, some people like, like Hester Peirce, who's another SEC commissioner, right. She proposed a safe Harbor where basically she said, okay, there's a catch 22 here, right. On the one hand, we're saying if you're sufficiently decentralized, you're outside the ambit of the securities laws because there are too many different unaffiliated parties who are all contributing value, and no single one of them would make a lot of sense to make an SEC reporter in the issuer position. So, uh, so we're saying that. But on the other hand, like we're saying that a project can never get there because if the token is a security, then it's never going to become liquid enough while being compliant to like actually have that level of decentralization. So her proposal was basically like, let's, let's cut this Gordian knot, right? Let's just give people like a, let's have them do like a fairly simple disclosure, 
right? Um, one that's not as tough as the standard that Apple Inc. has for its disclosures. And they can publish that. And then we'll give them like three years, you know, to get decentralized. Um, you know, they, they'll keep pub- publishing occasional reports about things like insiders doing trading and things like that. And, you know, as long as they are, you know, sufficiently decentralized by that point and there's no one really in control and it's, you know, a thriving community, I'm paraphrasing heavily here, obviously, then, you know, we'll give them a pass at that point, right? Uh, and the only thing that, that will remain is just the anti-fraud rules, right? If someone, you know, says something, markets the token fraudulently, we're still going to be able to go, we, the SEC, will still be able to sue them for securities fraud. You know, I think, I think that's a good proposal. I think a more liberal version of Regulation A plus combined with some types of safe harbors for things like AMMs and saying those are not securities exchanges. So that again, there could be a, the tokens might be treated as securities, but they could trade, um, you know, at least in some venues, uh, uh, you know, without breaking the law. I think that could also work, right? I think there are a lot of different things that work. The other day, I proposed an idea. Well. Really, all that all we care about is like whale abuse and insider abuse, you know, like basically trading against the other token holders who have less information. So just adapt, you know, what, what are called the, the Section 16 and the Section 13 rules that currently apply to uh, public company insiders and public company whales and require reports like that um, and leave the rest alone because no one cares about, like, do you care about Uniswap Corporation's financials like why would you care about that even if you are a huge uni whale i don't think you really care that much about maybe you might you might want to know just like their assets and liabilities or something like that but you don't need it doesn't need to be like audited by you know like a public accountant and like have all their internal controls certified and stuff like that the reason why it doesn't matter is because it's not an equity instrument that relates to those funds right whereas if you have apple stock the value of the stock is based on it being a residual claim of the assets of the corporation. And so it does matter there. So like they could liberalize these rules, you know, and they have done similar things in the past, like for example, for asset backed securities, you know, and there's a lot of gray area around that, but they should, that's what they should be doing. They, instead of collecting thousands and thousands of documents from like software developers who sometimes don't even have entities and they don't even own the software. And sometimes they never even raise money by selling anything. Like some of these projects haven't sold a single token to the public, you know what I mean? And they've never taken capital in from the public. Um, It's just kind of, you know, a bootstrap thing where the public liked the token and it became valuable, you know, and they had some of it and so on. It's just very different. And so that's what they should be doing. uh, But sadly, I don't think that's what they're doing. <laughs> no, no, that, it, those are really good topic areas for, for what they should be looking at. I mean, how does it play out though? Like, let's say, you know, hypothetically, they go after a few select companies, like you said, you know, selected enforcement kind of lay the land. This is what you guys kind of can't do. If let's say they go after one of the big DeFi projects um, that they can, I guess the question for you is one, where do they go after? Do they go after the founders? Do they go after the protocol level? Do they go after the UI? Like, what do they attack? And then two, you know, how does that pan out? Like they don't obviously automatically win. I'm sure there's some type of case or, or procedure there, but you know, that with that give and take, where do you think they kind of end up at the end of the day afterward? Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. And I don't think anyone knows. Um, there are a few different directions I could see it going. But number one, I mean, it's clear who they're going after. They're going after the software teams, 
right? And I would say, I think a little bit after venture capital funds. And they're going after them on the theory that, which is true, that they are greatly, it's, it's sort of like cui bono, who benefits, right? Well, the software developers do benefit a lot, right? Because they, they do make a lot of money. And it, it's sort of paradoxical because they don't own the software, right? And they don't run the software and they don't run any infrastructure. They don't own any infrastructure that the software runs on, right? Like it runs on Ethereum. Miners run Ethereum, right? That those software developers have nothing to do with it. They're not miners, right? They don't own that infrastructure. And the, the smart contract code, other people could fork it, uh, you know, usually under an open source license. And again, they, they would have no recourse. Um, but, but nonetheless, they, they still are, are doing very well, right? That's undeniable. And so there's a natural tendency to say, oh, these guys are, are running this as a business. They're in control. They need to be responsible. You know, and we're going to find a way to hold them responsible, right? And they, you know, they do often, they run websites. Websites aren't necessary for interacting with the smart contract, but they're certainly helpful, right? And they have branding, right? Some of these dev teams have like trademarked their branding and own it. So I get it, right? But, uh, um, you know, but, but ultimately, I don't think it's the right way to go. So, so anyway, so they're going after these teams and there are going to be some legal battles. The teams that are kind of like, I guess I would say Silicon Valley backed teams, you know, like they have a corporation and, you know, employees and all this stuff and and they like sold equity. I think they have an opportunity. I don't know if they'll take it or not, where they could most likely like pay a fine to the SEC. Right. And then start going into like more of this, like, like automatic finance route, right. Where they, you know, kind of like, uh, like Ave is doing right with its, its, yeah, um, institutional fork of the protocol. You know, I think a lot of a lot of these teams could do that, and they they probably would end up kind of like rugging the token holders in the process, right? Because I imagine part of the deal is going to be, well, you you got to say that you're not going to be providing any efforts to make this token valuable anymore, right? You got to prove that. So, uh, uh, and and so they would basically be rugging the token holders, but they would just say, oh, we always said it's this very limited thing. All it does is just decide how these other tokens are spent and doesn't do anything else. And by the way, Coinbase wants to buy us for a billion dollars because we're really smart. Bye, guys. You know, I, <laughs> I, I think I, I honestly think that probably will happen in, in at least a few cases. Now, what about others, right? What about teams that are like they don't have an entity, they don't have venture capital investors? In, in some ways, they're more vulnerable uh, because they don't have a backup plan, right? Um, uh, they don't really have supporters either, right? It's just completely dev run. Uh, uh, and they, because they don't have an entity, a lot of these people might have individual liability, you know, more easily provable anyway, you know, and, and being more direct personal trouble, you know, with regulators as opposed to being a director of a company and having DNO insurance and indemnification and all this stuff. So um, for those, you know, I, I think that they will like increasingly go anon, uh, you know, operate in the shadows, so to speak, right? Have multiple passports, uh, you know, this sort of thing. And, um, you know, they'll just adapt that way. And, and unfortunately, some will get in trouble, you know, but a lot won't get in trouble. And the, again, just the perversity of it is that this will just lead to less transparency overall, right? And more shady people having a safe refuge because now everyone's forced to act as if they're shady, even if they're totally honest, right? They, they still have to act as if they're almost like a criminal. 
And so uh, it gives real criminals safe harbor. Um, so, so it's just sad. But, you know, I, I think there will be this kind of bifurcated outcome. That, no, that's super interesting. It's kind of funny that by having the centralized entity, you're able to pay the fine and move on somewhat faster than an anonymous group. I guess taking that a step further, though, you know, let's say you are the decentralized DeFi project. You don't have the centralized entity to pay the fine. Uh, you're a founder and you drift into the shadows. You're still violating something, though, right? Because it, it kind of, I guess, in your example, you know, the centralized company pays a fine because it does something wrong and it's going to make changes. But the decentralized company, even though the token can still exist and the project can move forward, they're still running afoul something that the centralized company paid a fine for, right? They're not like off the hook. I think it depends. I mean, I do think in some cases, based on the substance, those types of teams actually do have better legal arguments, right? Because they, they there's no one um, like like really dumping, right? Like if you think about like, like what is the registration process that Gary Gensler talks about? Well, it's something you do before you go public or IPO. Why, why do you need to do that? Well, as long as it's venture capital investors selling to venture capital investors, you know, they're all assumed to be sophisticated and to have equal amounts of information and good methodologies for valuing things and so on. And so uh, there's not a need for the regulation there. But when you go from that situation to, you know, uh, an IPO, right? Um, and we saw with the WeWork thing, they weren't able to survive this because the valuation was such bullshit internally, right, um, that they, they basically weren't allowed to go public. Uh, uh, but the reason why the SEC is there and this registration process is required is because, you know, it enables these very sophisticated investors to dump on relatively unsophisticated investors. Um, and so that's a situation where the government wants to protect people. When you're in a situation where there are no sharks, so to speak, who just invested money and are, are looking to flip it at a profit. And there are only builders. Yes, builders can still dump, and that is still a concern, right? But they put in sweat equity. I, I just think it's different. You know what I mean? Um, uh, uh, and I think the policy concerns, maybe some of the same policy concerns are present, but they're present in a much different degree because, you know, with this venture capital path, you can really pump something to an absurd valuation with the, the venture capital investors facing almost no risk, right? They just keep putting money in and money in at these higher and higher valuations, right? Um, uh, but it's all, it's all kind of just happening on paper and they might face very little risk. Whereas if something doesn't go through that cycle, and it's just completely bootstrapped by the builders themselves, it, it, it's harder to fake a valuation. Right. Because like like truly the public, you know, is like discovering that valuation. And there's no there's no one sort of like manipulating the books or like staging things for this like grand IPO where they can all dump. Um, and so like my, my personal hope is that the that they're not that at least some of those teams are not actually violating the regulations. Right. Um, because they're not going through this traditional capital markets cycle that, that triggers people needing that level of protection. Uh, but I, you know, I, hard to say whether regulators and judges, you know, will ultimately end up agreeing with that or not. That's pretty interesting. You, you opened kind of discussion here with kind of how there's been a pretty big reversal in, when these projects raise money versus the traditional world, like, you know, traditional world, private money, then IPO and crypto, it's kind of, you know, public, then private. Do you see a good argument or, or do you see the government kind of 
accepting the new equality that we have. Like instead of me buying, you know, Uber when it's public, I, everybody can now get started and get invested way earlier. And it's kind of more optimal and kind of fairer. On the flip side, you don't have the diligence of a major bank looking through all everything and making sure everything's kind of up to speed. What's your take there? Well, I think it depends on the circumstances, right? Like if you look at a fair launch, right? Like 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 Bitcoin or arguably fair launch, right? It's like people debate these <laughs> yeah. things. So it's always, it was a problem, right? But I consider Bitcoin a fair launch or I consider like Urine, for example, you know, a fair launch, right? Because um, there was no, you know, the uh, Andre Cronia could have taken like, like 60% of the token supply or something and like it you know, took like none of it. So like in that circumstance, I don't see how they can sort of complain, right? It's like the ultimate fairness. Now, of course, like the downside of, of that circumstance in this extreme form is then you have people who it's like unfair to the builders, right? Like they did a bunch of work and they're making a bunch of other people rich from it, you know, not themselves. Right. And so like, that's not a great outcome either. So, you know, they, they will, I, I think until they lose some court battles, you know, they, they will just see the fact that, there are people who started this, right? And there are people who came into it later and it, it wasn't sold to them as accredited investors. Now there's the liquidity mining thing, right? I mean, that's the other element. Like really you say investing, but, but people are not, generally speaking, they're not investing, right? They're getting it as users of the platform, right? Now, are they using it a little bit more maybe because of this token thing and that it might become valuable? They probably are, right? Um, and it, it, does that mean that's an investment of money? Maybe, but they're not really committing capital. They can pull themselves out of the liquidity mining at any time. And, you know, I, I just think there are a lot of debates there. Like, like we're really at the border, right, of where, like, like do these people actually need protection? Like, like what is the risk that they're actually facing? Because as you'll find on Twitter, most people just feel like they're getting a lot of free money. You know, I guess the risk is to that it creates a market, right? By doing this, it creates a market and then... Eventually, someone will come in who actually is taking a risk, right? Because instead of like getting the token for free through liquidity mining, they're like buying it from someone on Coinbase. Um, and even though that money is not going to the software team, that person is still taking a risk of some kind, and they want to make sure you know that that person is protected somehow. But I don't know, can't can't protect. There are always costs to protecting people as well, right? To protect that one person, you know, at the cost of like everyone else losing the opportunity as a user to own the product that they're using and get upside with almost no risk. It seems a little crazy to me from a policy perspective, but I, yeah. I don't know that regulators see it that way, but yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's fair. It's kind of funny to think about. And the other question I had for you there is, you know, how much do, you know, you mentioned people on Twitter, like they just care about making money. Like how much do Americans voice and, like actually matter in all this, right? Like there's like a much probably broader question for you that I don't want to go down every path here, but you know, I mean, people missing out on a multi-million dollar DYDX airdrop, I think it's worth a couple million at this point or maybe over a million. I haven't checked in a while, but like that just pisses people off, right? Like, I mean, when, do, when does people's voices get loud enough to actually influence this decision or is this just too like utopian of a question on my part? No, I mean, I think it, I definitely think it matters, right? Because we can see some politicians are seizing on the opportunity, right? Like, like, like Emmer and even, you know, uh, uh, who was it? Uh, DeLong, I'm forgetting, but like the, uh, not DeLong, but there was, uh, you know, like basically like during the, the debate on the, like 
the tax bill, you know, as well as like these recent SEC things, you know, some politicians are like, hey, this is a good opportunity for me. I can I can get donors who care about this issue. Obviously, crypto people have a lot of money, right? Uh, they can spread it around. Um, and, you know, I can make this part of my platform. I can maybe get some of the youth demographic, right? Um, you know, and so, and the more politicians who see an opportunity there, the more they will push on the regulators, you know, to go lighter or be more rational, you know, and, and there will ultimately be progress. But right now, that's going to take a long time to play out, right? It's like a generational thing. Like boomers will die off, you know, and we'll take over, right? Uh, but <laughs> right the new now, generation. You've got, you've, got, you've got the Elizabeth Warrens of the world who are just like, you know, uh, I'm sure her, her motivations are sincere. You know, she, she just sees it all as kind of the same thing, right? Predatory CEOs are the same thing as like shadowy super hackers, you know, are the same thing as, you know, uh, 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 God knows what, right? And they're all just out to like exploit the working man, right? And manipulate the markets, you know, and we got to protect them, you know? And I get that, but I just don't think it, it quite applies the same way to... That, that seems um, like such like, a propaganda yeah. of a line. I feel like that would be in some yeah. commercial in some, you know, scary movie. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And yeah. it's like, and I just don't think... Like she's like, yes, at a sufficient level of abstraction, it's all the same. But like the reality is like Enron was an SEC reporting company. It was one of the biggest frauds of all time. Right. Whereas all these systems, are they perfect? Are people like completely safe? No, of course not. But it's, it's all on chain. Like everyone can see the risk. Everyone can see the code. And it's just like the fact that there's some risk to like focus so much on that area when you have like like the Madoffs and the Enrons that happen right under the SEC's nose, and then to say, "Oh, the SEC is the cure for this problem that hasn't even happened yet with these systems," and so like we just need to crush it all. It just makes no sense. I mean, that's it. Just makes no sense. No, no, I, I'm with you. It doesn't. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And you know, building on that point, like, what do you think that the regulators that are super against it care about? Right? Like, do you think that they care about you know? crypto undermining, you know, the U.S. dollar and, you know, degrading, you know, us as a country's kind of global power? Or do you view this as, you know, hey, we want to protect our, you know, TradFi friends who have big companies who are getting disrupted by this? Or do you think it's more of just, you know, like you said earlier, like a power grab kind of in a place of ignorance a bit? Like, I'm, I always get asked this question from friends, like, you know, why does the government hate innovation so much? And I'm like, you know, I don't always have a great answer for them. So I'm not sure which bucket you kind of fall into there well it's sort of uh i'm sort of like i read a lot of like foucault and nietzsche in college and so like i'm a big fan of this idea of like a conspiracy without conspirators like (laughs) basically like at a certain level like all these people just have a job right and like you have a job and like you just do your job and some people might get philosophical about it in their spare time but it's like uh, i'm an sec staff these securities laws exist. They're defined very broadly. My job is to enforce them. Some politician is like yelling at my boss, like, because, you know, she thinks like it's all like very risky. Right. So like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do my job. Right. Uh, like at a certain level, I just think it's that simple. Um, well, well, Gabe, to your point, yeah. does it, does it make sense that like, you know, people like me, even with my question are just like simplifying what is just a massively complex machine of just people going to work every day. I mean, it, it I, I kind of think so. Yeah. 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 We're just all caught in this like matrix. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, I'm sure like there's some like SEC staffer who like 
thinks what he's doing is so stupid, right? But like, he has to do his job. And some days I think what I'm doing is stupid, you know, but I yeah. still do my job, right? It's just kind of like what it is. Yeah. You, you mentioned something during your discussion. I didn't want to interrupt, but you mentioned when we were talking about the difference between, you know, the, the more centralized projects and the, and the more de- decentralized ones, you mentioned the idea of personal liability, which I think is something that most people don't really understand well. Um, you know, they just, you know, release code and I'm glad they do. It's a ton of innovation, but the idea of personal liability for launching a project is pretty massive. What exactly is that? And do you think people understand how much they could be on the hook for you? Yeah, no, I I think people didn't take it seriously until recently. And in part, there's good reason for that because traditionally the act of writing and publishing software just hasn't been considered a high risk activity from a legal perspective. Um, before now, you know, about the closest we ever got to it maybe is like you know, something like Napster, right? Or like, you know, Mega Upload, right? Um, and that's a distant memory for a lot of people. Uh, or, you know, in the case of many young people, like 20 somethings who were writing DeFi contracts, they didn't live through that era, right? So, and it, it's tricky because there's not one answer um, and it works differently under different regulations, right? But, uh, you know, the basic idea that we have in, most civilized nations that if you form a business entity, right, and you capitalize it sufficiently and you do things through that entity, that entity has legal personhood and it is treated, if, if it's breaking the law, then that entity is the lawbreaker, right? And that entity might have to pay a fine, thus placing its capital at risk. But the individual shareholders and managers, they usually aren't guilty of violating the law, even though they sort of like caused the entity to violate the law. Now, so like in the general case, right, like if there's a securities law violation that's non-fraudulent, you know, usually just the entity would, would would pay the price. The problem is that, well, two things. Number one, there's also secondary liability, right? So like if you aid and abet the entity violating the law, which requires that you sort of like knowingly cause it to violate the law, right? Then you could be personally liable. Like the, so that's like the theory in the Ripple case, right? Of like why Brad Garlinghouse is a defendant. So there's that's always a possibility, right? The other thing is that, you know, entity like entities are not a complete shield. Like if you don't actually treat the entity as a fully separate thing, you don't um, do all the board meetings or like when you minted the token, you didn't like pass a board resolution that says, you know, this corporation is minting these tokens and distributing them here and here. Then, or like you also have these weird multi-sigs and like the relationship of those to the corporation is like pretty unclear. Like some people work for, who are on the multi-sig work for the corporation. Others are just like random people from the community. Now, now you are, even though you have an entity, you are muddying the waters. Right. And, you know, it is possible through a theory known as veil piercing uh, or through various other types of allegations, you know, to to hold the individuals liable for violating the law. And then there's kind of like also an overlay of like, you know, if you go look at the Delaware corporate code, for example, it says a corporation can be used for any lawful purpose. Right. So if you're not using it for a lawful purpose, you know, then you probably shouldn't respect, expect that that limited liability will be honored, right? So it's not so much, I think people fetishize in both directions. Some people are like, having an entity doesn't matter at all, which is obviously false. And then other people are like, oh, I have an entity, I'm safe. Neither of those things is true, right? 
you, you have to really think about what you're doing and the way you're doing it and what society has to say about responsibility, right? And look at the specific laws, uh, uh, you know, to see what your personal exposure is. But a lot of people have personal exposure. It, it kind of sounds like it's pretty obvious if you know that you're doing it the wrong way. Uh, as with kind of my opinion with most legal things, like, you know, if you're screwing up or, you know, if you're kind of, you know, if, if you have an entity and you're obviously not putting the time into it, the board meetings, separate bank accounts, the multi, like you kind of get it at that point. Yeah. Gabe, switching gears just to kind of close out the discussion, um, no rush, obviously, but just a different topic area. USDC has obviously been talked about a lot. I mean, people saw that Circle got a letter of some kind and they've been talking with the government for a couple of months now. Obviously, you know, USDC as a stable coin is plugged in from everything from how, you know, VCs like us fund deals to yield farming to just stable payments. I don't, you know, it's billions of dollars um, in issuance. I think it's 41 billion or maybe higher. I got to check. But there's been a lot of discussion on how the government may go after Circle or USDC if they even will. And I guess the effect of that and if people should switch to a different stable coin like UST or, or others I was wondering your take there. I know it's a broad question, but I want to let you take it um, whichever way you want. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I, I ha- am very surprised that stable coins have gotten as big as they have. I remember, you know, discussing with some prospective clients back in 2017, you know, they had some ideas around doing stable coins, which, which maybe, maybe they hate me forever because maybe I talked them out of them. But, you know, I, I just thought, how can this ever really be a thing? Because the, for better or worse, um, most economists who are influential or, in, or have power, like Paul Krugman, for example, they they don't believe in sort of like the Bitcoiner type of like monetary theory. They believe that it's a good thing. And it's like an essential, it's like one of the most important things in the world that the government be able to manipulate the money supply, basically at will, right? And they think this is extremely positive and extremely valuable. So if you believe that, and and in some sense, I mean, who knows, we might have another like Weimar-like hyperinflation, it might happen. But on the other hand, like we, like we survived this COVID thing pretty well, right? We've survived some other things, even the like the whole Lehman Brothers thing, you know, yeah, it caused some problems, but like they were able to bail it out and it kind of worked, you know, like it could have been much worse. We didn't have another Great Depression. So like I'm not as like skeptical, you know, as some people uh, about that. I'm more open-minded. But whether you agree with that philosophy or not, you just have to know that most people in power think it's a great philosophy. Um, And so if you have this stable coin out there, right, when that reaches a sufficient scale, that will adversely affect the ability of uh, the Fed to control the money supply at will, right? And so, of course, they're going to hate that. They're going to view that as like one of the top existential threats to markets, national security, everything possible, right? Um, so regardless of like technical, we can talk about technical arguments as a security, blah, blah, blah. They just don't like it. They just don't want it and they want to get rid of it, right? And I understand the reasons why. You know, and and it's not surprising to me. It's more surprising to me that it got this far. I guess I would say. Isn't USDC though kind of an extension of their power in a sense? And I'm far from the macroeconomics, you know, macroeconomics on our team. But like, wouldn't like a plethora of USDC within DeFi and globally just help their reach because they're able, you know, our government's able to manipulate the underlying, you know, US dollars. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, there is that argument, right? It's like, it's kind of like, well, aren't you sort of, isn't it a good thing if everyone's using digital dollars, right? And do you really want to see that over to like China or something to make their, you know, digital yuan? Because if USDC is the best digital money stable product and everyone starts using it, that'll be an extension of US hegemony, right? And I, I, I personally, if I were in power, I probably would see it more like that, right? But they're not saying they're currently, they don't seem to be saying it like that. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I agree with all that. Yeah, it's weird. No, it, it is weird. If they were to go, let's say the government goes after Circle for USDC, and I'm not saying they will or they won't, but you know, if they do go after it, what do you think the effects will be on DeFi? Do you think people just hey, transfer USDC to another asset and good to go? Or I'm assuming if the government wanted to effectively go after USDC, they wouldn't allow some grace period for people to move out of it. But yeah. yeah, I don't know what they would do. I would like to think that they would try to unwind it gracefully, you know, and minimize the harm. But, uh, but I just don't know. My, my personal guess is like, you know, I think Circle, you know, is backed by the right people. And of course, it has this Coinbase relationship and which is now a public company. I don't think it's going to get destroyed. I just think it will have to, you know, become more regulated, right? Um, and some of the others, you know, might get destroyed, right? And there's no real rhyme or reason to that because uh, I think Tether and USDC at this point are basically the same as far as I can tell. You know, they both have this short-term commercial paper supposedly and they're both like, we don't really know really exactly what they hold. So like, I don't really think they're that different, but except that one like maybe made better political bets, <laughs> you know, it might be safer for that reason. Uh, uh, but I, I don't think it'll go away completely, right? Because it's just, it's too useful. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. And um, I'll, I'll phrase this question because I know you're working on a lot of amazing stuff within Delphi that we can't totally disclose right now. So I'll lob this as a, a dumb question over to you. But, you know, UST is obviously an alternative here. And you're, you guys are building within labs basically around the entire ecosystem there on that foundation. Do you view it as, I guess, you know, a, a better option regulatory wise or... I guess, how do you view the comparison? And I know I'm acting dumb here, but I want to get your view. Yeah, sure. So, uh, well, I think, it, I mean, I'm always, ultimately, I think the the purpose of these technologies, like what can be regulated will be regulated, right? You know, and obviously something that's collateralized by an institution, you know, with like a business entity and holding like bonds and stuff like that, you know, that, that thing can be more easily regulated than something like DAI, where all the collaterals on chain, uh, or something like an algorithmic stablecoin, uh, uh, like like UST, um, where you know it doesn't have any backing at all, right? And so I'm always like, I think it's very important to keep pursuing these solutions. But there's always the question, like, why is USDT and USDC why are they so huge, right? Uh, it's because it's very easy to scale things on a centralized basis. It's very hard to scale other things, and they're like still experimental. So, like, I definitely think UST is going down the right path, and I think it's like one of those things where if it can scale, it'll be great because even if it, let's just say for the sake, I don't think it is a security, but let's just say for the sake of argument that it were a security, they were definitely a security, right? Still, um, 
it, it's just going to be very hard to shut down, right? Because it just depends, like like all the, the the arbitrage that holds the peg could just move to like DEXs and stuff like that, and or they can move to like offshore exchanges where the securities rules are different, and um, people could like keep maintaining the peg, and people could keep using UST. So from that point of view, uh, it's pure. I don't know whether it can scale sufficiently. Right. Um, but that's why we're building. That's why we're building on Terra, because if there's a lot of demand on the Luna side. Right. And there's a lot of demand on the UST side. That's sort of like extrinsic, not really speculative, but like merchants who accept UST and people who want to pay for things in UST, as well as people who, you know, I suppose want to um, either like uh, uh do governance through holding Luna, you know, or even just speculate on the price of Luna, then then the, the more external drivers of that there are, the more scalable it will be, right? And ultimately, yeah, maybe that can become very, very robust and, and a usable alternative. No, that's a really good take. Gabe, I have a couple of faster questions for you to respect your time. Sure. Um, I have one potentially longer one for you. Um, we'll close out on, but, you know, formation within crypto projects is, is hard. You know, sometimes I laugh at some VCs and they say, Hey, we'll just, you know, we'll copy the safe and the warrant. We'll change the name and the amount and the entity, you know, make a few edits and we have our legal docs. That's rarely the case. You know, what do you think is the optimal formation for a token project? Like Dow first, you prefer safe and warrant safety. There's so many different ways to form this. And there are a lot of dependencies here. Like if you have an entity or if you don't have an entity and, you're going to issue a token or you're not going to, you know, there's so much to go back and forth on here. And I know you're personally innovating in this a lot and we could talk about that on a future podcast, but I guess right now without, you know, talking too much about what what you're doing on the innovation side, what do you think is the optimal kind of structure legally for, for a token company to kind of form? Uh, well, there, there isn't one optimal structure because because there are catch 22s, right? So it depends on the values of the people involved and, what, what they want to prioritize, right? If you if what you wanted to prioritize is having the least likelihood of um, your governance token being a security um, and like things like that and like your DAO quote unquote being a general partnership, then you, you probably would do something like Uniswap or like DYDX with these types of companies where like you just define like very, very thinly what the token is. You exclude, you do, or you, you try to make some efforts at least to exclude us persons from receiving the token, um, or maybe even like using the, the smart contracts through your website, um, and, and this sort of thing. And all the revenues continue to flow to some corporation, right. That you just completely own. Personally, although like that may be uh, arguably like have the best like securities law defenses, I actually think it's the most unethical, right? Because I, I people just they just won't accept the idea that maybe this token is is just almost like close to totally useless. Like they're still going to give it this value and be buying it and stuff, and that's going to give these insiders a lot of exit liquidity that like maybe maybe they don't really deserve, right? Because like. Like, why is this token valued so high? Like, I just don't get it, right? Like, no fees flow to the token holders. It doesn't decide anything. The same team could produce the new version, and they could say, yeah, this version, um, like, it's actually governed by this some other token, right? Or, like, no token, right? Like, they could do that, and they've never said that they won't do that. 
So like these valuations are kind of absurd for those types of tokens, but that is probably legally like the safest thing you could do. On the other hand, if you want to say, no, like I, I want to make sure that this makes sense and that people are treated well, right? Then I think the, the, you go in the exact opposite direction. All of the value goes to the protocol, to the DAO, to the token holders, right? There is no equity. There's no separate equity. There are no conflicts of interest. Everyone is 100% aligned on the token, right? And um, in terms of, and so you got to bridge to that, right? So like, like in our case, for example, we have these like joint ventures and basically everyone who's getting the token is like building the thing, right? There aren't any like really external investors, so to speak. And I think that that's a good philosophy if that's what you're pushing, because there is this idea under the securities laws that if you have, you know, what's called a, a partnership, right, that that the interests in that partnership are presumptive non-securities. Why? Because every person is putting in their own efforts and responsible for their own efforts, right? Uh, they're not relying on the efforts of others. And you don't want to be a partnership necessarily, but if you're partnership-like in that sense, where everyone who has this token and is getting value is also giving value and personally responsible, there's also a good argument that that should be outside this security laws for very different reasons than under the, the the other set of projects that I talked about. So those are kind of the two main themes, I would say. Very, very different, and only litigation and further developments will tell which one fares better or however you want to put it. So we'll see, I guess. No, that that's fair. And I guess on the structuring, you know, I think what we've seen in the space is there are some really solid external law firms out there, right? Like um, I, I'll, I'm not going to name any specifically, I don't want to play favorites, but there's also kind of not that many solid lawyers who both understand crypto and I guess have the incentives to leave a cushy job and to dive in and take the risk, et cetera. Obviously from a finance background is worth the risk reward, but you know, not everyone has a Gabe Shapiro in their project, right? Like not everyone knows, you know, where the lines are that you just drew in the sand, you know, to go to go after that. Is there anything that other lawyers in the space can use to get up to speed to follow, you know, what you consider to be best practices? Because in my opinion, it's great for, you know, Delphi, you know, candidly to have someone like you here, but I want to help the entire space move forward and to know how to do this in the best way too. What would be your advice there? Well, yeah, I think that the, I mean, that's why I write a lot and tweet a lot and I'm in like millions of telegram groups and we started this like sort of DAO-like thing called LexPunk, um, you know, that got, got some funding from, from Curve and Yearn uh, uh, and Lido, uh, which is great. And we're, and we're going to do more there to kind of try to pull more lawyers in and, and get everyone talking to everyone. But, but I think, I think that that's what you have to do. You have to talk to people and, um, try to work more like a developer, right? Open source your own work product and hope that that inspires other lawyers to open source theirs and collaborate. Very, very hard for lawyers to do this. Lawyers hate doing this. It's like culturally completely against the grain, but there is so much to figure out. And like, sure, you know, I, I mean, I, of course, it's always nice to hear I'm so knowledgeable and all this, but like, I'm figuring this shit out every day. You know what I mean? And like, there are things I said a year ago that I would think are like absolutely idiotic now, right? And it, 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 there's just so much to, to do and uh, uh, 
it will only evolve if like people kind of put their egos aside and like all start collaborating on stuff. And it, unfortunately it's still very antithetical to law firm culture, right? Because law firms want to say, Oh, we're the best. We understand the most. Uh, oh, we don't want to share our form with them. You know, they'll take business away from us. Right. Um, and, and that's why it evolves very slowly, unfortunately. So I, I would say, yeah, if you want to get into it, like you can hit me up or there's other people you can hit up, find us on Twitter, join telegram groups, join forums, talk, talk a lot. Talk to regulators, talk to each other, talk to your clients, get your clients to talk to other people's clients and collaborate. And, you know, then we will make a lot of progress. Gabe, do you think it, um, like, just like the traditional kind of develop, like how developers have been disrupted in crypto, right? Like instead of going to Google for four years and making, you know, 500K, you just start a crypto project. Doesn't this also kind of disrupt the traditional legal model where you have like 500 associates? Like, why the hell would I want to grind as an associate, just like grinding on Wall Street and finance? when I could just go, you know, crypto full time. And I'll preface that with, you know, I personally learned a ton of Wall Street. I wouldn't take it back, but it kind of begs the question though. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's a tremendous opportunity for young lawyers who are smart and understand technology and don't want to have, you know, what I call a 10-year cliff on their uh, investing their equity in a law firm, right? Um, because you could jump into one of these projects and you can get a token grant and, you know, give them legal guidance. You could do very, very well. Uh, uh, you know, there's some ethical issues around that, uh, but all this will be figured out. And the people who took calculated ethical risks, you know, will, will like in any area, you know, they'll get an outsized portion of rewards. Uh, so I agree with you. And every time I see him, I say maybe do one year in big law or something like that, and then get out of there and join a project, right? I love that. Gabe, I'm excited to have you on for more episodes. There's a lot of different areas we can go into. Um, we'll cap this one at an hour, a little over, just that I can get back to work. But Gabe, thanks so much for coming on, man. I know we covered a lot and I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Anytime. Before we go, we'd like to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. With a proven track record of delivering products safely, the Kava platform is DeFi's most trusted, scalable, and secure institutional-grade cross-chain engine. In addition to the protocols Kava and Hard, the Kava platform is launching Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Try for yourself or learn more today by visiting kava.io. Celo is an open platform for mobile-first DeFi with a vision of bringing decentralized financial tools and services to anyone with a mobile phone. Eco-friendly, Ethereum-compatible, and governed by Celo holders, Celo's proof-of-stake consensus mechanism and automatic daily carbon offsets make Celo the world's first carbon-negative blockchain, offsetting over 2,200 tons of carbon to date. To learn more about how to lend, earn, and stake with Celo's growing family of platform-native stablecoins, visit Celo.org today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.